This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 7th of May 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up in the next half an hour, Simon Brook is here. He'll chew through the front pages with me. Plus, Andrew Tuck's weekend column. Bigger can be better. And in work and life, perhaps we all need to have a little more Jonesian confidence to just go for it, not restrict ourselves because of limitations set by people who don't see what we know. Well, Andrew Muller knows a great deal. Here he tells us about it. We learned, or rather relearned, that actually getting to Australia is still just about the most tedious and least pleasant possible way of spending 24 hours, like even worse than listening in a single sitting to the entire catalogue of Billy Joel. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here's the news. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said diplomatic efforts are underway to save the remaining fighters holed up inside the steelworks in the city of Mariupol as more civilians were evacuated from the bombed-out plant. The defenders have vowed not to surrender. Ukrainian officials fear Russian forces want to wipe them out by Monday in time for Moscow's commemorations of the former Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. A deadly explosion hit a well-known hotel in downtown Havana on Friday, tearing a gash several floors high in the side of the building, killing at least 22 people and injuring upwards of 70, witnesses and state media said. Speaking at the scene on Cuban television, the president said the blast at the historic high-end hotel Saratoga appeared to have been caused by a gas leak. And streets in Sri Lanka's commercial capital, Colombo, are calm today after the president declared a state of emergency following escalating anti-government protests. Details of the latest emergency regulations are not yet public, but previous emergency laws have given greater powers to the president to deploy the military, detain people without charge and break up protests. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers. And I'm joined this morning by Simon Brook, who's a journalist and a communications consultant and a regular contributor here on Monocle 24. <laughs> Good to be back. It's lovely to have you here, Simon. Simon, the big news, of course, the, uh, this week, or one, one of the big news stories was the fact uh, of this leaking of uh, uh, legal judgment, Roe versus Wade. And perhaps you'd just give us the, the context for this. Yeah, exactly. So this was an indication of the kind of political complexion, if you like, of the Supreme Court of the United States with uh, the leaking, as you mentioned, of the uh, of the document, which suggested that Roe versus Wade, which is, of course, the, the historic uh, legal decision, which basically legalised abortion across the United States, that that might be overturned. Um, and uh, already um, states are beginning to make decisions on this as if the the, the law had already been made. Uh, in California, the, the governor there, Gavin Newsom has vowed to amend his state's constitution to protect abortion rights. Uh, meanwhile, on the other hand, uh, the other sort of political end of the political spectrum as well, uh, his opposite number, his counterpart, Kevin Stitt of uh, Oklahoma, has signed new legislation which will prohibit abortion after 
six weeks. Um, so and most women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. Well, this know. is the, absolutely this is the thing. There is the sort of there's the the moral question, there's the medical question, as you say, and then there's also the the political question, and that's probably what is grabbing most of the headlines at the moment. Um, and yeah, the the New York Times, Peter Baker, who's their chief. White House correspondent really explores the way in which this debate is a another indication of the schism that we've seen in American politics and society. Uh, and as I say, looking at uh, the act- attitudes of states, uh, and he points out, you know, on the one in the one corner, if you've got the, the pro-abortion, uh, the women's right to choose, you've got the Northeast, you've got the Mid-Atlantic seaboard, and you've got the West Coast, as I mentioned, California, and then on the other. You've got uh, the South and a lot of the Mountain West, and then you've got the Midwest sort of split between the two, really. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, as I say, uh, if there's a real strong political dimension to this story, and if you map where people stand, where states stand on abortion, you can see it, it fits into where the, whether they're Republican, Trumpite or Democrat, how they feel on things like critical race theory, all those kind of very mm. sort of topical, controversial issues. I mean, Biden said this week that the MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political organisation that's existed in American history, in recent American history. And I mean, he, he's, he's right that the country is absolutely divided. It is very much. And I think what's interesting, uh, and this is what this piece in The New York Times makes the point that uh, that obviously when Biden was elected, he made a big play of uniting the party. And, and uh, the piece points out that that's what most of his predecessors done. That's one of the jobs of the American president, isn't it, as the head of state, whatever. Trump was different because, of course, he made a big thing of dividing the party. But now uh, we've seen with uh, President Biden's comments that he is he's willing as well to wade in and be very critical. Um, Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki, his uh, press secretary, mentioned yesterday uh, that uh, she's quoted in The New York Times as saying his view is that this is another example of the ultra MAGA, the Make America Great Again agenda as well. So it's interesting that he that President Biden as well feels the need to get involved on one side of this debate. Mm. Uh, I saw such an interesting uh, suggestion uh, in the media this week, and it was this. uh, Vasectomy is reversible. What if every uh, boy that reaches puberty has a vasectomy uh, and it's only reversed when he can show that he's emotionally mature enough and financially responsible enough to be a father? There wouldn't be many reversals, I don't think. So <laughs> not from be, my experience, But also, anyway. wouldn't there be an outcry? How dare you tell us yeah. what to do with our bodies? Yes, oh, completely, absolutely. No, it really is. It's, as I say, there's the moral element, there's the medical element. There's a, there's a gender element here as well, isn't there? But it's, it's just a shame that something that should be, I, I suppose, should be sort of there for you know, sort of nuanced debate for compassion, for real soul-searching or whatever has been turned into your evil, I'm good, that sort of black and white, mm. blue and red in the case of the US debate. And I think it's interesting from us looking at across from this side of the Atlantic because, of course, in, in, in the UK and Europe, this, this just isn't an issue at all, is it, really? No. So we cannot understand, I think, why uh, the Americans can be taking this view and so many of them are opposed to a, a woman's right to choose. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think it should be made absolutely clear that nobody's pro-abortion. It's, no, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not about promoting... One. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. just about having the right to choose. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, and the right to choose, and that's interesting, again, if you come into the language of politics as well. Well, you know, the right to life, 
the right to choose. I mean, as you say, nobody's going to say, yeah, more abortions, or no, we want to stop all abortions or whatever. The, the way you phrase it is, is very much part of the politics. But, but again, the temperature is being turned up on this issue. And instead of that kind of, as I say, that thoughtful debate about what exactly we're talking about here, we are getting something which is very much sort of tub-thumping, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go from this very, very divided issue to something that is uh, altogether much nicer. <laughs> and that's uh, Andrew Tut talking about the wonderful hospitality chain that is Soho House. I interviewed Nick Jones, the founder of Soho House this week, on stage at an event held in a very sunny Berlin. What's not to like in that sentence? The event was the International Hospitality Investment Forum. There were money people in the room, lots of hotel owners, folk who do clever stuff with loyalty programmes. But by the time it came to Jones and Tuck, the closing act, people had been deep fried in conference chat and a few had clearly headed off to explore Berlin or perhaps just down a Stein or six. But Jones was up for winning back the crowd and just before we went on stage, told me to ask him anything. I like Jones. He once spoke at Monocle's Quality of Life conference, coincidentally the Berlin edition, and was not only good value, but took time to sign Soho house books, well, I guess every penny counts, and talk with delegates afterwards. He's easy with people. On stage this time, he was true to his quiz me word. We discussed the business's flight path to profitability. Soho house continues to post a loss. Every house is profitable, so if we stopped opening houses, the company would make a profit, he explained patiently. And meanwhile, the pace of expansion just seems to quicken. I asked whether it was hard for a brand, not him, to stay attractive, cool, once it hit 25 years of age. He underlined that being cool was not what Soho House was built on. We talked about why they ditched the cow brand names for its various shampoos. Too easy to offend, it seems. One shampoo had been called Grumpy Cow, which just won't wash these days. The name, that is, not the product. But I hope the people in the audience took this away too. The most impressive thing is that, despite the stresses, that rapid growth, Brighton is just opening now, Copenhagen imminent, Stockholm en route. He clearly loves his job, properly beams when talking about the business, and he delights in the fact that Soho House is young, diverse, and offers a way for people to connect over a bottle of wine, a place for all sorts of adventures. Although it seems that a digital version of Soho House is around the corner. I may even have seen it, but that would be telling. The following morning, Jones was off to Copenhagen to inspect the new house. I asked whether he still changes everything around at this stage. Well, the bar will probably move, he joked. And the mode of transport to CPH? EasyJet out of Berlin's new airport. It was a good display of the brand, not about wealth, but experience. But blimey, what's happened to airports? They're all so creaky. It took close to an hour for the snaking queue just to clear security in Berlin. Every person had to stand in a body scanner, but unlike in other airports, instead of waving your arms in the air like you just don't care, you had to point them downwards like a wobbly Frankenstein's monster. 
but time and time again, people instinctively went to put their arms up in the air and had to be retrained one by one on the spot, sometimes staff physically moving them into the correct monster shape. Wow, it was painful to watch. Then there was a large Turkish contingent ahead of me. The security guards prodded and poked every headscarfed lady, yet not even a baklava smuggler was discovered. Even children of three were being frisked, as if the airport had been tipped off about a miniature-sized mafia gang on the prowl. Then to the passport control, where they had installed a member of staff who was asking everyone where they were heading, and for no clear reason. And each time someone said, London, he would bark, London has five airports, which one? It felt like being in a pub quiz where the same question is asked again and again. Finally, we were through and the flight was delayed. I took the train out to the airport. Navigating public transport in a city that you don't know perfectly seems to be getting trickier. The ticket machines in Berlin were confusing, the wayfinding on the stations discombobulating. So I asked a man who looked like a local which platform I needed. In seconds, he pulled up an app on his phone that had beautiful and easy-to-understand graphics, a world of information that only locals know how to access. And he found me my train and sent me on my way. At this point, I would have happily hugged him, but I didn't want to get arrested. I may do with a whacking, Dankeschön, delivered as if he'd donated me a kidney. One final thing from Nick Jones. Don't underestimate what your brand can do, become, while still holding true to its values. Even with the scale of expansion at Soho House, members, it seems, love being part of it. Jones said that people stayed loyal throughout the pandemic and that if he ever gets a letter of complaint, he knows that it's because people care. Bigger can be better, and in work and life, perhaps we all need to have a little more Jonesian confidence to just go for it not restrict ourselves because of limitations set by people who don't see what we know. Gosh, I'm going to be writing self-help books next. Thank you to Andrew Tuck. Don't set limitations set by people who don't see what we know. Sounds a bit like UK politics right now. Uh, Let's have a look at UK politics because, of course, we were talking about the huge division in the United States. It's no no better here. No, exactly. So we've had local elections this week, uh, uh, big big setbacks for the the Tories. But what's really interesting is uh, the the result in Northern Ireland. Now, we don't have that final result. Uh, Counting is set to resume in the Northern Ireland Assembly election today, Sinn Féin is firmly on course to emerge as the largest Stormont party. Tell us why this is really important, Simon. Yeah, the Financial Times, among other papers, noting that. Uh, The point is that this is the first time uh, that a nationalist party uh, will, that I, I committed to Irish unif- reunification has outperformed unionists in the region. So, um, yeah, Sinn Féin uh, so far up to about 29% of the first preference vote because, of course, Northern Ireland uses the proportional representation scheme. That's up just 1.1 votes on the 2017 election. 
but it's well ahead of uh, of the 20, 21.3% uh, s- score for the Democratic Unionist Party. And this has long been uh, the, the region's biggest political force, of course, emphasis on the unionist element. You know, this is a party that's always believed that Northern Ireland should be part of the United Kingdom, uh, run from Westminster. Um, the, the centrist alliance party is another big winner, which scoring 13.5% and they're up on 4.5% uh, sorry, points, um, which, uh, according to the Financial Times, underscores how many voters no longer accept traditional tribal unionist and nationalist divisions. And yet, on the other hand, uh, as, as I say, um, you know, Sinn Féin, which is very much the party of uh, unification in Northern Ireland, for the first time, looks like it might be in the driving seat. And certainly we've seen pictures in the news of the, the party's two leaders absolutely delighted with the result. And of course, this will be a huge headache already on top of not uh, very favourable election results for the Tories, for the Tory government in Westminster. Mm. So we'll wait to see how they handle it. So Sinn Féin, of course, grew out of the IRA movement uh, and mm. uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, though, that uh, Ireland will be reunified because, of course, there would have to be uh, all sorts of uh, legal uh, hoops to go through. There's a, there's, there needs yeah. to be a referendum. I think it's yeah. controlled from Westminster. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that does. You're absolutely right. But in some ways, those legal hoops actually are slightly less onerous, if you like, than they are in Scotland. So obviously the focus has very much been on Scottish independence, especially with the real success again the, during these elections for the SNP. But it's interesting that bubbling along under the surface or certainly not gathering the kind of media uh, attention that Scotland has, we've had this situation in Northern Ireland. And in fact, um, the, 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 as I say, it, it actually requires less in terms of uh, legality, in terms of legislation, all those kind of things, to create uh, a united Ireland. And certainly one academic that I was speaking to a couple of years ago was saying that if her money was on a, 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 one of either Scotland or Northern Ireland leaving the United Kingdom, she'd put the money on Northern Ireland. Mm. And of course, that completely solves the, uh, the Northern Ireland protocol issue, doesn't it? Suddenly, there's no hard border if Northern Ireland doesn't belong to Britain. No, absolutely. And, and this is really one of the sort of issues that has been at this debate, uh, that, you know, the focus of this uh, election campaign. So, as you know, ch- checks on, uh, on goods uh, take place in Northern Ireland and that makes sure that they comply with EU laws. But this has led to some criticism that you've got this new trade border, which is sort of created in the Irish Sea, if you like. And so there's been much discussion, the Democratic Unionist Party threatening to boycott uh, the next uh, Northern Irish government because it says that the protocol represents a threat to Northern Ireland's place within the UK. So this uh, this has been particularly controversial because obviously under Theresa May, the previous Tory Prime Minister, the DUP propped up her minority government. They've always been closely associated with the Tory party. And yet, of course, the protocol which the uh, the UK government negotiated with the EU is, uh, go- is an anathema to them, really goes against everything they stand for. Mm. So that adds to the complication, adds to the instability, and you could say also probably increases the... certainly makes life a lot easier for a future Sinn Féin administration. Now, 
uh, Labour should be celebrating it this time. They've done very well in the local elections. However, uh, there are all sorts of questions now about the leadership, and this is because Keir Starmer is now being investigated by police uh, over so-called beer gate. He had a curry and a beer with colleagues whilst working late. The police, the Durham police, who incidentally are the very same people who refused to investigate Dominic Cummings' drive to Barnard Castle because they don't do things retrospectively, they said, Apparently have now not. decided that they are retrospectively going to investigate uh, Starmer about this. Uh, and, uh, of course, Starmer has been very clear, saying uh, on Boris Johnson the fact that he's been investigated and indeed charged by police uh, for his parties uh, should resign. And people are saying, well, Starmer hasn't a leg to stand on. He's got to go now. It, yeah, it is very difficult. I mean, quite understandably, <clears throat> the uh, the party gate issue was a gift for Labour. And I think um, talking to sort of Tory MPs and Labour MPs, they've been saying even though Starmer is not a great charismatic visionary leader of the opposition, at least one thing you know as a former director of public prosecutions he would follow the law, he would do the right thing so this has been good for him obviously it's been very very bad for the for the Tories and we've seen that in the local elections but yeah as you say the fact that, that uh, Keir Starmer made a big thing of this and made a big thing of the fact that Boris Johnson should, re- should resign when he was under investigation uh, is now very difficult for, for Keir Starmer because obviously he's un, under investigation as well. I, I, talking to again to Labour MPs, Tory MPs, nobody I think expects Keir Starmer to resign over this. But I think the problem is the fact that uh, the, the Labour didn't do quite as well as they'd hoped. I don't think they were very good in terms of expectation management when it comes to the results of these local elections. And then you've got this issue as well hanging over. It just means that those celebrations that Labour should have been having, great result, mid-term, we're on our way to an election victory uh, at the next general election. That's sort of been muted and, and rather slightly embarrassing. Mm. I mean, when you look at the numbers, actually, the Lib Dems and the Greens did incredibly well. I think the Lib Dems almost doubled their, their yeah. representation. Yeah. Um, but just just sort of looking at Boris Johnson, everybody mm. said, well, if he gets a bad result in, in the May locally, mm elections, then he has yeah. to go. There seems to be no sign of that. One one uh, piece I, I, I read, I think, in The Times was talking about how this might be actually an opportunity for him because, as we know, uh, MPs have to put in their letters to the 1922 committee to force a, a vote of no confidence. Perhaps Johnson might try and make that happen before the re- re- result of Partygate comes out, before uh, the police have concluded their investigation, before the Sue Gray report comes out. It's something that he fights, he wins, and then, of course, the reports come out very damaging, but he cannot face a vote of no confidence again for a year constitutionally. Yeah, it's certainly a possibility um, and uh, the thing that it reminds me of is uh, there's been a lot of comparison with the 1990s Tory sleaze and, and uh, other issues like that and of course the last time a political leader, a Prime Minister did something like that was John Major when he was Prime Minister who resigned as leader of the Conservative Party because he was fed up with uh, backbiting and, uh, and criticism uh, of his leadership and said right, okay, I'm going to stand for the leadership of the party, obviously carrying on being Prime Minister, and then we'll really see back me or sack me sort of thing. The problem for him was that even though he did uh, win the uh, the leadership election, he didn't do resoundingly. Do you know what I mean? We could suddenly see exactly how many Tory MPs opposed him um, and it sort of brought to the fore the whole debate about whether he should be leader. So that would be an interesting thing that, that Boris Johnson could do. But as I say, the problem then is you would actually see how many letters went to the 1922. You'd get an absolute definite uh, dis- sort of analysis of, of how his support... Uh, 
how good his support was. But I think the, the problem is the fact that, you know, if it had been disastrous for the Tories, Johnson would have to go. If against all the odds they'd done really well, then he'd position would be very well shored up. The problem is it's that agony now that Tory MPs are in. Uh, It's bad, but not too bad. So what do they do? And of course, the other problem is, as you say, the Lib Dems have done very well and where they've done particularly well is uh, in the south. So in those traditional Tory areas, the Lib Dems and the Greens are really eating the Tories' lunch. So you can imagine a lot of Tory MPs are very nervous about the fact they're looking in their backyard, their own uh, local election, their own councils or whatever, are now very much sort of dominated by the Lib Dems and the Greens. So if you're a Tory MP, it really you're really going to have to do some soul-searching and probably some ringing round to your local association members to decide what to do this weekend. Absolutely. Now, he's not been in London uh, for a few weeks. He's on holiday, although he still seems to be working. It's Andrew Muller with What We Learned. We learned this week that the producers had had another one of their ideas. We appreciate your sympathy at this difficult time. We learned that the producers had learned that the compiler and narrator of these monologues had announced his intention to set off for the South Seas in search of a vast and strange land, long rumoured to still exist in the vicinity, but from which little had been heard for some while. Very good. Don't stint on the Atmos. We learned that, therefore, the producers wanted to learn what there was to be learned from returning for the first time in a long, lockdown-enforced while to the land of one's ancestors. Yeah, Maybe this one Let's give it a go. this See time around. Goes, Pff, wouldn't hurt, would it? I'll give it another 30 seconds. Yeah, we'll give it a try. Yeah. We learned, or rather relearned, that actually getting to Australia is still just about the most tedious and least pleasant possible way of spending 24 hours, like even worse than listening in a single sitting to the entire catalogue of Billy Joel. No, you don't. But we learned upon arrival that some things have not changed, in a good way. We heard from the kookaburra earlier, that was this one. So sticking with the previously established theme of avian atmospherics, let's have the Australian magpie. Beat that, British magpie. See, you can't. I mean, that's just a din. But we learned that Melbourne is in fact still here and has emerged more or less from one of the world's longest and most stringent COVID-19 lockdowns. Melburnians are once again drinking the coffee with which they are rightly, if perhaps somewhat excessively pleased, and attending, very possibly travelling by tram, matches of that strange game which bewitches the city during the southern winter. From which we learned that there are still few more agreeable expenditures of an afternoon than visiting the Melbourne Cricket Ground to watch a game of Australian rules football, even if the fixture which falls into your schedule serves you up a win by Collingwood, a club which, for the uninitiated, has long combined Manchester United's sense of entitlement with Millwall's persecution complex. Have got a Sunday special to go with Anzac Day? Oh, so special! 
had a good view of that one and will grudgingly concede that young Ginevan looks like a player. Good old that will do, though. Scrutinising the newspapers afterwards, we learned that there is an election on. Aww. Well, yes, but it would be as well for an alleged sidelong look at the news monologue to look sidelong at some actual news, and that's what we've got to work with, so we're running with it. By way of accompaniment, here is the jingle which soundtracked a previous attempt 50 years back by the Australian Labour Party to return from a longish stretch in the wilderness. Don't knock it, it worked. However, we learned that this Australian election is rather lighter than that of 1972 on faintly hysterical gospel exaltations heavily influenced by hippie musical hair, and perhaps heavier on rows about the correct preparation of chicken. Not an Australian native, but maintaining the ornithological theme. Good work. We learned that Scott Morrison, Australia's Prime Minister as of this broadcast, had cooked dinner for his family. And we learned this because he put a picture of it on the internet, because that's what people do these days for some reason. And we learned from this that the chicken appeared somewhat underdone which became a whole thing, but then we learned that it wasn't because the Prime Minister himself felt it necessary to address the nation on the subject. Morrison's words now rendered by Monocle24's Australian Elections Desk Chief, whoever Christie could get to read this nonsense out. I mean, people just kept coming back for seconds. I think it was just the way the light bounced off the skin of the chicken. But we learned, while vaguely wondering what we'd come all this way for, that coming all this way is about to get somewhat easier. We learned that Australia's national carrier Qantas, and let's pivot to a new theme of antique Australian television jingles, We learned that Qantas hopes by 2025 to do London to Sydney or Melbourne in just one excruciating hop, and we learned that they hope to take the edge off this proposed 20-hour flight by including on the A350s what they call well-being zones. We are encouraged by the illustrations, which appear to include the primary requisite for long-haul equanimity, i.e. an absence of other bloody passengers. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much to Andrew Miller. I'm not quite sure when he's expected back, but I think it's at least another week or so, uh, and uh, then uh, we can expect him in the studio here. Uh, now, let's have a look at the South China Morning Post, Simon, uh, because uh, we are talking about the FCC, the Foreign Correspondence Club. Now, it's probably 20 years since I've been there, but it was a, a kind of wonderful scene of debauchery, to be quite <laughs> honest. That's the word you're looking for, yes. Um, but it was, it, it was, yeah. yeah, the gathering place for, for journalists throughout Asia and, and you know, all the kind of war correspondence and uh, all the rest were all, it was, it 
was very, it was very macho. It was a place where, where people yeah. hung out. Yeah. Uh, also very colonial in its yeah. outlook. And some yeah. might say that the fact that it's probably about to close down is a good thing because, yeah. uh, you know, these things must move on. But anyway, tell us about this piece. Yeah, well, it's, it's a lovely um, celebration. I mean, the, the club was founded in 1943, but uh, this particular uh, piece is looking at the fact that um, it's celebrating 40 years in its uh, location in Central. And there's a lovely interview with uh, Annie Van S, who was apparently a sassy young secretary in 1968 when she lunched at the Foreign Correspondence Club with a friend working at the BBC. And uh, in those days, the, the club was just a small bar and restaurant occupying a corner of the Hilton Hotel in Central. Um, and then she went on to marry a Dutch cameraman who took that amazing picture of Americans leaving Saigon, you know, with the helicopters, mm-hmm. uh, helicoptering the last... Uh, um, diplomats and, and probably spies as well uh, and others as they uh, uh, prepare to sort of escape from the North Vietnamese army. And yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful celebration of everything a, a club should be, really. I like the fact that it's described. The FCC is tight-knit, complete with petty squabbles and sibling rivalries, but it's always looked after its own. I mean, isn't that the point about a club anyway? So um, I thought, because obviously Andrew Tuck just a moment ago was talking about uh, Soho House, wasn't mm. he? And it did make me think that that is the point of a club. And I did go there probably more than 20 years ago whatever being invited for a drink there and uh, um, it wasn't quite as amazing as I thought it would be but there was something about the fact that you knew that uh, as you say so many amazing characters had been there and just a wonderful idea of what reporting on a war does to you you know the the sheer insanity to go and do it in the first place Mm. Uh, but then you take that into the club and you boast and you squabble and you uh, there's a few descriptions of sort of punches thrown and a, a statue smashed and things like that but you know it's all good fun, isn't it? Uh, the reason I was there was I was covering the rugby sevens, not a subject that I'm particularly <laughs> I've always had you as a, as a rugby fan, I have to say. <laughs> I was covering it for the Zimbabwe Broadcasting mm. Corporation and so they sent me off to Hong mm. Kong and I was doing it for radio. Right. Uh, and so, of course, nobody was going to see me and I just needed to read out the report. And mm. as soon as I got there, I found this rather charming American sports reporter who knew absolutely everything about the rugby sevens. So he'd deliver his report for his kind of local radio station in the US. US, and then hand it to me. I'd read it down the line to the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation. Brilliant. How insightful. And, how well informed. And bugger off to the FCC. So. <laughs> Which is the idea, isn't it? You know, for many reporters, let's get the job done as quickly and easy as possible and then do the important thing and grab a few drinks. Yeah, so. <laughs> it was it was quite fun. But of course, one of the other uh, aspects of this is that we uh, celebrated Media Freedom Day. Yeah. Yeah. So seriously, I think this is why this is important that, uh, yes, the the World Press Freedom Index uh, published by Reporters Without Borders published their index uh, earlier this year. Now, I think when I was talking to somebody from the Foreign Press Association, I think they said Britain is now 33, which really shocked me, I have to say. the Scandinavian countries top the the, the poll as you could imagine, mm. but what I think what makes me really sad and angry, having you know been to Hong Kong quite a few times and you know having a certain romantic, perhaps it is colonial, I don't know, a, 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 you know, sort of attitude towards the place was that Hong Kong has dropped sixty eight points um, since its twenty twenty one score, and there's only about I think one hundred and seventy countries or something that are that are part of the uh, the list so 68 points it's fallen since with things like apple daily closed down draconian anti uh, anti journalistic anti freedom um, initiatives launched by beijing against hong kong so 
I wonder how long this club will be allowed to go to carry on or whether it will be seen perhaps as a sort of breeding ground of, you know, of resentment and, and uh, you know, opposition to, to Beijing. But if it can continue and if people can carry on reporting for the, the terrible things that are happening in Hong Kong, then, yeah, great, let's let's keep mm. doing it. As Quentin Peel pointed out to us earlier this week, you know, it's it's not so much the, the people, the, the firemen, as they're called, who kind of have flown in to cover a conflict. It's the local reporters that are bearing the brunt of this. It, when you're reporting from your own country uh, and, and you're stopped from doing so, it's easy enough for, for one of us to come in from Europe or from America or wherever and do the job. But for a Chinese reporter sitting in Hong Kong, it's incredibly difficult. It must be absolutely terrifying. As you say, they're the ones that are doing, they've got the contacts on the ground, they're the ones who are putting their neck on the line along with the people they speak to day in, day out. And of course, again, in Hong Kong, we've seen this massive increase in the number of reporters who have been arrested in some cases tortured, imprisoned. Um, and one of the, the, the Press Freedom Index has also shows that around the world there are record numbers of uh, journalists who are, uh, who are in prison now. And the problem is, as you say, it's the big names on TV. We all know them, don't we? Or, or the bylines on the, in the written media or whatever. But it is those people doing that day-to-day job. And I know I'm a journalist and I know the media isn't... Uh, we're not always the best behaved and certainly we we're, we're, can be easily criticised, absolutely. But at the risk of sounding stating the obvious, you know, a free press is the building block of, you know, of a, of a free democratic society. And I mean, if you look at what's happened in China with uh, the the absurdity of the COVID uh, uh, shutdown in in Shanghai, if you look at the the ridiculous situation really that Putin has got himself in into Russia, uh, you look at all kinds of uh, similar situations around the world. You can see how a free press. Uh, democratic debate, people getting involved, questioning their governments, holding those governments to account. I don't think you would have got into that ridiculous, those ridiculous situations really, would you? It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, really, that's all we have time for, unfortunately, uh, Simon, but I would just say topping the um, Media Freedom Index is Norway. Uh, it was so, not. I'm sorry, exactly. I knew it was a Scandinavian country. Yeah. Good old Norway. Absolutely. So, big shout out to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, who hails from Norway. <laughs> well done for representing <laughs> Absolutely. Get that banner out, Norway. <laughs> uh, and by the way, while we're talking about that, you've got to see Norway's Europe Revision entry. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Um, well, we're talking about freedom and human rights and things. Yeah, yes, from, from the subwoofers, um, and right. it's about grandma and wolves and eating bananas. I mean, just, of course. You've got to look it up. That's very sensible Eurovision, <laughs> just exactly what you'd think. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I shall Google it immediately. Eurovision this time next week. Uh, <laughs> and uh, tomorrow, uh, our edition of Monocle on Sunday is coming to us from Tokyo. So that's at 1700 Tokyo time, 10 a.m. in Paris. 9am here in London. Many thanks to Simon Brook. I'm Georgina Godwin and thank you for listening.